We're New York Presbyterian Queens, the only hospital in the borough with a five-star rating and a comprehensive heart program. It's a world of amazing care. Learn more at nyp.org slash amazingqueens. Five-star rating according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are speaking to absolutely one of my favorites, Michael Lee, basketball writer, extraordinaire, sports and culture writer, sports and politics writer, all of it for the Washington Post. And we are going to speak about the Denver Nuggets, a team that hasn't gotten nearly enough shine either on this podcast or in the basketball universe. And gee, they're going to the NBA Finals after sweeping LeBron's Lakers. So why don't we spend a little time and not talk about what happened to the Lakers or what's up with the Celtics or how are the Heat uh, doing everything that they're doing? Uh, Jimmy Butler, forget all that. We're talking Nikola Jokic, we're going to talk some Michael Porter Jr., we're going to talk some Jamal Murray, and we're going to talk some Mike Malone. And you're going to hear my comparison of Nikola Jokic to the players of yesteryear, and we're going to see if Michael Lee agrees. Basically, I'll give you a little hint. It's a little Moses Malone, a little Larry Bird, a little Magic Johnson. You mix it up in the genetic splicer, you get Nikola Jokic. And we're going to see if Michael Lee thinks I'm on point with that or if he thinks I'm out to lunch. Also, yes, I'm going to speak about the passing of Jim Brown. So get ready for that. And so, and that, that, that's the show. That's a full show. So let's jump right on it and speak to the man himself, Michael Lee. Mike Lee, you're the only person I wanted to talk to about the Denver Nuggets. So thanks so much for joining, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Look, first question is, let's be frank, in all the playoff previews that I heard, and I heard a lot, the Nuggets, despite having the best record in the frightening Western Conference, seem to be universally slept on. Uh, Why do you think so few experts gave the Nuggets the inside track to make it out of the West? Because we have this tradition of just um, leaning on names and teams and uh, markets that we find familiar, and it makes us comfortable that we can say Steph Curry, you know, with the Warriors, they won the championship. So LeBron James, we've known his name for the last 20 years. So, yes, he seems like somebody we should lean on. Um, And so with the Nuggets, you know, they're a team that hasn't had a history. I mean, the whole franchise, you know, you can go back to David Thompson, you know, Alex English to Carmelo, you know, these, these teams, they don't, they don't win championships. So the franchise history, and also I think there's a lot of people who just sleep on Nikola Jokic and don't really appreciate how great he is. They look at him on the court and they say, how is he able to do all this? How is he able to get all these rebounds? How is he able to get all these assists? And look at his shot. I mean, what is that? What is that thing that, that he's putting up there that's, that's dropping every time he puts it up? And so there's a lack of appreciation. And then there were two years that they did not have Jamal Murray. And no one wants to talk about that. They're like, he won two MVPs, but his team never got past the second round. Well, you take Jamal Murray off the team, and it's not the Nuggets. It's just Nikola Jokic and a bunch of guys. And the reason why he won MVP all those years is because he elevated a roster that really wasn't up to standard because Jamal wasn't there. And I think that's what people um, just sort of failed to recognize. And that's why I was really offended uh, this season when he was up for a third MVP and people were saying he was stat padding and, and coming up with all of these uh, reasons to discredit him when really, and I, I can, I can say this. Um, I actually was fortunate enough to spend a week with the Denver Nuggets coaching staff back in 2016. Um, this was uh, Jokic's rookie year. And so I got to watch them really break down film and talk about players and really see the relationship that he was forming with Mike, Michael Malone. And I came away really impressed with him. I didn't think he'd be a two-time MVP, but I thought he'd be really good because of the things that he did in practice, the way he worked, and the way his teammates just gravitated to him. Like, everybody thought he was their little brother. I mean, Mike, Mike Miller was on that team. Everybody loved being around him because he was so much fun and he brought so much joy. And that's the one thing I think that's missing or people don't understand about championship teams and special teams. If your star player has a great attitude, and a great um, approach to the game and to life, that's magnetic. And that's just something that people want to be around. 
And that's something that people want to play hard for. And that's why he's so special um, because he, he has this great attitude. Same thing with Giannis. A lot of international players, you know, they just have this tremendous attitude about the game and about their place and how fortunate they are. And they don't really want to waste their their opportunity or their window to perform. And so I could see that even back then that he had that. And then just to see his growth and his development, um, I just think that he's a really special player, but he just looks so weird and unorthodox out there that nobody really wants to give him props. And that's why. But mainly it's because we are so late in anointing what we're seeing or the, you know, the special players that we're seeing right now because we're so stuck on the past. You can go back you know, a decade ago when LeBron was ascending and really about maybe 15 years ago when LeBron was truly ascending and everybody was still stuck on Kobe because we were used to what he had done five, six years prior to that. And I just think it's just sort of, it, it perpetuates itself. Just everybody just holds on to the names that are familiar and they're not ready to embrace what's new. And I think that if the NBA did a job of just embracing what was new, we wouldn't be so surprised that the Nuggets are here. Yeah, how much of this is on the NBA? I mean, you think about the games that they schedule. You think about the the inferior teams with the big names that are on network television. And you think about the Denver Nuggets uh, toiling yeah. in Denver. Not exactly a big media market. I mean, it was the underselling of the Nuggets and, frankly, the underselling of the two-time MVP as well. Is this just about market share or do you think this is also strongly re- more related to, I think, the overestimation of the so-called Mighty West and how and, and what a juggernaut that conference was supposed to be going into the playoffs? I mean, don't get me wrong. The Nuggets have been great, but there have been a lot of paper tigers in these playoffs. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I was surprised everybody just anointed Phoenix again. I think it was because we were familiar with Kevin Durant. You know, we, we knew Chris Paul. We knew these names that have been, you know, uh, around for so long. Um, I think one of the issues that Denver faces is that it's in the mountain time zone. So it's, and, and usually when you have your television games at night, you have a seven o'clock game and a 10 o'clock game, right? And so the 10 o'clock game or 1030 game, whatever the late game is, a lot of times the Nuggets are thrown on that game because they're in the, in the Western Conference and that's fine. But most people in the East Coast go to bed. So they're not sticking around for that late game unless they want to see a staff or a LeBron. That's what's probably going to keep them up because they're not really saying, well, Nicole Yogis, why should I watch him play? But they don't really put their games on the East Coast on TV. <laughs> you know, like they don't put um, necessarily, uh, like if they're in Milwaukee playing uh, Giannis, that should be a game that should be on, on ABC on a Saturday. You know what I mean? Just because you got the last four MVPs, like they, they played this year and they weren't on national TV. The, the last four MVPs were, mm. were played each other and they were not on TV. And I think um that's one of the issues that denver faces they also have their own kind of local uh, cable issues that probably hurts their uh appeal with their local fans um but i think overall it's just hard to figure out where how to place the nuggets in the right um you know on the, on the right schedule but uh but i think the league just has to find a way to put good teams on tv the thing that frustrated me in the last couple of years is that no matter how bad the lakers are they are on tv every week and all they do is talk about how bad the lakers are uh, they turned it around, you know, after the all trade deadline. So we had to watch a lot of really bad Lakers games the first half of the season when there are all these good teams that were coming up, Sacramento, Memphis, Denver, all these young teams. So when we got to the playoffs and so Sacramento's the number three seed, everybody's like, well, the Warriors are going to win. And then they're like, wait, how is this series going seven games? Why, why is this team so good? Who's De'Aaron Fox? Why is he so special? I can't believe this guy's pretty good. You know, and people didn't realize the Lakers beat a Grizzlies team that was missing its starting center and its best and its best backup big man. No one even knew. It was even it wasn't even discussed that the Memphis was shorthanded that series. It was just like, wow, the Lakers are so much better than this number two seed. Well, the number two seed was was diminished, but you wouldn't know it because Memphis isn't on TV and they're discussing their issues. All you're talking about is John Morant, you know, flashing guns on his Instagram live. You're not talking about the actual team. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 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 where we do a disservice because we're an NBA is a star driven league, but it doesn't have to be just about the stars. The game itself, to me, is very entertaining and it's very compelling. And if we focus on the, the game itself and not just like, you know, which players can we get traded to this team and which players need to leave as free agents and which players, you know, we always talk about this player movement, but we don't talk about the actual game 
and we want to have the sexy storylines and all the hype and all the drama. And there's it's there's enough that we can discuss that without trying to force force it force it on fans. But there also is a lot of basketball that we can discuss. There's a lot of things that we can do to break down what makes Jokic so special, what makes him so good. You know, this is a guy that has more triple doubles in the playoff run than Will Chamberlain. Like, think about that. Wilt is like the record. Every time you have a record, Wilt held it, right? <laughs> this guy is breaking Wilt records in the playoffs, and some people are sitting back like, you know what? That guy's pretty good. Well, yeah, he's got two MVP trophies, and it's not because we just like him. We watch him play, and we know what he, his value is. And I just think that the, the NBA just doesn't – they're kind of stuck in the 80s because you had Magic, you had Bird, and then you had Jordan come along. And you could just ride these stars, and they were going to take you there because they had the personality, they had the charisma, they had all the things that you wanted, and you could sell that to fans. But now it's a lot harder. There's a lot of things that can draw their interest. There's, there's, um, you know, they got their phones, they got everything else, so they're not watching games the way they used to. So I think that when you do that, you got to switch up how you promote your stars, how you really try to make sure the fans connect to them. And, and, and make make it happen, you know, because, you know, there's so many international stars now. Try, try to tell us about their homeland. Try to explain what it was like for him growing up in Samba, Serbia. You know, really try to help us understand who this guy is. And there's so much that we can do to educate fans in that regard. But we don't do that because what we want to talk about is like, you know, after this series, we're not talking about Jokic and how great he is. We're trying to say, is LeBron going to retire? And like, okay, yeah, I don't think he's going to retire. He's got $100 million left on his deal, and his son's going to be entering the NBA in two years. I think he's going to stick around. That, I mean, we don't need to really spend, like, hours trying to discuss that. But let's try to discuss what makes Jokic special. Mm-hmm. Let's try to discuss what the last two years have been like for Jamal Murray and coming back from an ACL injury that took away the postseason and just how he is a guy who just grinds it out harder than anybody else. He works his tail off. I mean, he worked so hard when he was early on in his career. The Nuggets had to lock the gym so he wouldn't go there. Like, mm. this is a guy who just really intense. He just wants to work to be great. So, like, yeah, he's hitting these shots in the fourth quarter. Yeah, he had 23-point third quarter, or fourth quarter, um, you know, in game two. And that's great. But what makes him so good? Why wasn't he doing this at Kentucky? You know, we could, we could have conversations about basketball and not just about drama and about, you know, suspense and all these other storylines that really aren't – you know, they have no no substance to them. We can provide substance to fans. I think that we dumb down everything and think that NBA fans are simpletons who just want the most, you know, low-hanging fruit possible to, to enjoy the game when it's not like that. I think fans are, would create would accept more if we gave them more, but we're so busy just trying to do the bare minimum uh, in terms of, like, the network um, partners. They don't really care about trying to provide what fans need. They just want to give them what they think they want. Mm. You know, I was happy for MB to win MVP. It was it was fine to me, especially yeah. given some of his incredible uh, presence on the defensive end, stuff that you can't really measure statistically. I mean, we saw that in the Boston series, like Jason Tatum goes in for a layup and then just says, eh, I think I'm going to dribble it back outside to the three-point line. <laughs> you know, there, so there's a <laughs> lot of greatness in Embiid. But I, I could never get with why people felt like they had to trash Jokic to support exactly. Embiid, I mean, and I'm talking about at the highest levels of the NBA commentariat. Uh, yeah, do, would it would it be good for the league and for basketball culture in the whole for some of these folks to do a serious mea culpa right now? Because you're you're accusing an all time great who's about to take a team to the finals after sweeping LeBron. You accuse him of being a stat patter. You know, of somebody who didn't deserve awards. I mean, there was an ugliness about it that I think turned a lot of people off. What was that about? And like I said, do you think it would be good for a little bit of humility right now? It would. You know, and a lot of people were trashing uh, Jokic. Uh, you know, obviously Kendrick Perkins was the main one who came mm. out with the, the stat padding thing. But a lot of people fed into it. You know, um, you know, I, I, he's my home guy from uh, Kansas City, Nick Wright, he would always act like he's the worst MVP yes. ever and everything. I'm like, no, this is ridiculous. But this, this is one of my favorite stories about Nicole Jokic. Um, you know, Tim Connolly, uh, you know, he's worked for the Wizards and um, we talk a lot and uh, he's one of, uh, you know, he, he built this Nuggets team even though he's with the Timberwolves right now. And he told me this great story about Nicole Jokic, which I was sold. So Nicole Jokic's first um, playoff series, place postseason run, I'm sorry, in 2019. The Nuggets lost in the second round in game seven. 
Um, Jokic averaged 25, 13, and 8 in his playoff run. He almost averaged a triple-double in his very first playoff run, which no one discusses. But this is what made Jokic special. They lost game seven. In the locker room, this is his first playoff run. They weren't expected to do much. He's in the locker room crying, crying, shedding tears, and apologizing to his teammates and saying that he should have gave them more and saying that I will never let you all down like this again after his first playoff run. This is a guy who almost averaged a triple-double in his first run, and he's crying and apologizing to his teammates for not giving them enough. And that story, I mean, obviously I'm sharing it now, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who knows it. But when you hear something like that about a guy like Nikola Jokic, you know where his heart is. You know what he is all about. He is about winning basketball games and doing whatever it takes. He's not about trying to get 50 this night. He's not about trying to get, you know, stat, you know, get 20 rebounds. He'll do it if he has to. But his objective, and he's even said it, you know, if, if one guy hits a shot, you know, then one guy is happy. But if you get an assist, then two guys are happy. The guy who passed the ball and the guy who made the shot. And he wants to make sure that two guys are happy on each possession. Mm. When, you, when you have a guy like that who has that mentality, you're going to want to play with a guy like that. You're going to enjoy playing with a guy like that. But you also need to do a better job of making sure fans understand what this guy is all about. Because he's not just out here trying to just get numbers. He's out here trying to make sure that his team wins the game. And if you watched him throughout this postseason run, this guy was averaging, what, 30, 13, and 10 or something? In the, in the, <laughs> he's averaging a 30-point triple, triple-double in the playoffs right now. And he's got his team in the finals for the first time. And so many people are shocked and amazed that this happened. Like, how can we get to the point where a number one seed beats a seven seed and we're sitting here in shock that the seven seed got swept? Yeah. The seven seed got swept because they were the seven seed. You know, you like uh, what Parcel said, you are what your record says you are. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they are where they were. And they, yes, they had a great run, you know, to get here. But the Nuggets have been a consistent team all year. They've been the best team all year. And no one wants to recognize it, but they've been there all year. They got a great talent. They got great roster. Um, they made a great trade for Aaron Gordon a couple years ago. They were able to get Michael Porter to buy in. And so you don't talk about what Michael Mike Malone did. Michael Malone did to get Michael Porter Jr. to buy into being a team player because he's used to being the man. He was, you know, if it weren't for injuries, he probably could have been number one pick in his draft. But, you know, he got hurt. But he got him to buy into being a team player. And he's out here, you know, making an extra pass, not just out there gunning every shot. Because his first couple of years, he would frustrate his teammates with his shot selection. But you can see he's maturing. Aaron Gordon wasn't a part of a winning situation in Orlando, but he gets here and he accepts his role. This is a, you know, these are lottery picks that are up here playing, you know, taking the backseat to, you know, a, a second round pick in Jokic and willingly accepting their roles and knowing that there's a chance that this is going to be their night. You know, they, they could have a 20 point night and everybody's going to be happy with it because they're all about trying to win games. And that's that's what makes the Nuggets so special. But they've been here. They've been doing this all year long and no one wanted to pay attention to them because we're not used to their names. We're not used to and they're not flashy. You know, they're not like high flying dunkers, you know, but um, but they are. I mean, I guess Aaron Gordon is, but, but he's not really a superstar. But, uh, but I, I think that. When you have that, you should really embrace that and you should really promote that because it, it'll be good for your league. It'll be good for your game. And it just strikes me as odd. You know, it's, it's like, you know, um, in the NFL, they don't really care about which lousy game they put on Thursday night or Sunday night because no fans are going to watch. But they also make sure that they promote all their teams because they know that there's money to be made from all their teams. Even with Major League Baseball, with all of their flaws, they make sure that every team has an all-star, mm-hmm. you know, at, during the all-star game because they want to make sure that all their fans are engaged. So the NBA completely ignores good teams so we can keep just th- flo- throwing the same stars out there, same aging stars who, you know, as great as they are and as great as they've been for a long time, they are fading. They are getting older. And you got to embrace something new. You got to embrace the fresh faces. You got to embrace – you know, the, the, the players who are elevating your game and your sport. And I'm just glad that we have a, I guess, a Gen Z team that can come up here and, and really make a statement. You know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, um, about the finals. But right now you have a Gen Z team that's in there, a bunch of young guys who uh, have a chance to 
take the league to a new place. Mm. I only have a couple more questions. Are you good on time? Literally, I have two and a half questions. Cause no, we're good. We're good. All right, it's two two big things I want to follow up on that you just said. Um, one of the defining points of this offseason has been the firing of the great coach. Because I consider people like Budenholzer, Monty Williams, uh, Nick Nurse, even Doc Rivers to me has, you know, like serious credibility as a coach. And they've all been let go with, I mean, has Doc been officially let go yet? Is that oh, yeah. his- Official, official okay yeah absolutely bye bye the bags are packed um <laughs> but, but you know the nuggets stuck with malone you know over mm-hmm. some over with michael malone over seasons that maybe other teams frankly including the horrific at the time sacramento kings jettison mike malone you know because you know, yeah, remember that that was bad yeah i remember that totally because uh like i said when i spent that time with the uh the nuggets coaching staff um that was right after he got fired by the by the kings um, well, I, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I, well, actually tell, I guess I'm just asking for the lessons about what should the league be learning from the Nuggets with their patience. Well, if you have a young team, you have to be patient with a young team. Um, you have to see it ascend and reach a certain status, and then, um, and then you move on from there. Um, and that's what the Nuggets did with this. They, they realized that I mean, you're, you're, you're building a team in, a, in an orthodox way. You don't have a bunch of number one picks, you know, that you expect the expectations are you're going to win championships right away. You have the 41st pick is your best player. And then the seventh pick, you know, um, a guy, guy coming off injuries, you know, you're not expecting him to be great. But what you do is you, you have, you pay them, you, you build with them, and then you constantly make moves to complement them. And that's why I mentioned the trade for Eric Gordon, Aaron Gordon. That was great because, you know, the last time that, you know, they lost Jeremy Grant when they were in conference finals last time, they let him go. But then they realized, you know, we need a, a versatile defender, wing defender, you know, perimeter, you know, and also post defender. And so they got Gordon in there to kind of fill that role for Jeremy Grant. So you got to keep building. You got to understand that, yeah, the coaches can do so much, but you got to continue to upgrade your roster, you know, when, when the team isn't good enough. You know, they got KCP in there, a guy who won a championship. And he's a great, a great locker room guy, a great spirit guy, great attitude guy that you can add to your team. Um, you know, people wonder why DeAndre Jordan is in the league, right? <laughs> he's in the league because he's a great locker room guy. He's a great teammate. Everybody loves being around him. It's a good time. You got to have guys like that on your team. And that's when I, I remember talking to Calvin Booth, you know, early this year. Uh, and he mentioned just having a, having good guys on your team. Um, but I think that now that the Nuggets are here, that they've arrived, that – the expectation is going to be that they continue to stay at this level, that mm-hmm. they continue to make pursuit championship chase championships, that they continue to um, be in the conference finals and the finals from here on out. But if they take, if they keep taking steps back, you're going to have to wonder, is this, is this, is, have we plateaued with this coach? And mm-hmm. that's, I think that happens a lot. So I honestly think I can justify every firing that was made this year in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and that doesn't mean that it's right. But it does. I can understand why every move was made, because mm-hmm. if you look at uh, Budenholzer, um, this is a team that's meant they're not supposed to lose in the first round. No matter how good Miami is looking right now, they're not supposed to lose in the first round with Giannis. They're not supposed to go out like that in five games. They're not. They're just not supposed to happen, especially when you're losing the second round last year. So you will go from a championship and now you're moving backwards. You're not. You're not moving forward. You know what I mean? And so if you look at the 76ers. Brett Brown got to the second round, and they were like, okay, now we need a guy who closed the deal. Doc Rivers got there three years in a row. They never got past the second round either. And he wasn't hired by Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey was hired after him. And you know how that works when the GM comes in after the coach. He can't wait to fire that guy because he wants to get his own guy in there. So the fact that Doc got three years, to me, actually was kind of surprising. So I think that he gave him all the time that he was willing to give him because they didn't, they didn't grow and build together. The Nuggets, you know, Connolly and and uh, Michael Malone, they were building together. And Calvin Booth was um, an assistant on that uh, in the front office. So they all kind of grew up together. And it's, it's unique when you have an opportunity to do that. Um, but when you have championship aspirations and you fall short of those, then that's what happens. You know, same thing with the, the Phoenix Suns. And I like Monty Williams a lot. But you go to the finals, then you – lose in the second round in the most embarrassing fashion possible last year 
um, you know, down by 40 at home in a game seven, which is unbelievable. Unheard of. But then, but then you look in the offseason. Um, you didn't communicate with DeAndre Aiden after the game of Max Steele. The franchise is investing in this guy. It's your responsibility to connect with him, even if you don't like him. It's your job as a coach to connect with him and get the best out of him. Clearly, you didn't get the best out of out of him, but the but the team is still paying him, and you can't trade him now because his value is very low. The only way you can really change the, the team is if you change the coach, you know. And then you also lost Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder demanded a trade. He he was just a, a distraction for the entire year. A lot of this is because the relationships that you aren't really developing. And I'm not I'm not saying that it's all on money, but I'm saying that if I'm a new owner, I'm coming in and I'm observing these things then I'm going to make a move to just make the change. Hmm. And so that's what happens sometimes. It, and it's funny because a lot of these moves happen in 2021, right? The Bucks and the, and the Suns got there. And it kind of looks fluky now because that was a rush season coming hmm. off of COVID. So they had just played the finals in October. And then they started the season in December. And all the teams that were like in the, in the conference finals, they all got eliminated pretty early that year because they just weren't. They weren't healthy. They weren't able to withstand, you know, the grind of a full season coming off the bubble. And so you got these new teams that emerge, and with that becomes expectations. What happens when those teams that were good the year before all of a sudden get good again? Mm. Then, and then you're kind of like, well, maybe we kind of oversold what we were. Um, and that, that's, that's a tough position too. But once you build the expectation that you're going to be a team that's in the finals or contending for a championship and you start sliding backwards, you got to look somewhere. And in this new uh, CBA, it's tougher to build teams. It's tougher to, uh, you know, make teams more competitive. It's going to be hard to uh, to hold on to a coach that can't win. And and also, you can't deny the fact that for some coaches, your voice is lost after a couple of years. Um, it's so tough to hear because what you're saying is that Mike Malone at this ultimate moment of professional triumph is also now officially on the clock. He's on the clock now. Yeah, he's got to get it done. Wow. That's what they all signed up for. And that's what they all know uh, that they that they have to do. Um, the beauty of it is, is that if you have that success, you're going to get another job. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get a chance to do it again. I mean, look at Doc. I mean, he, he had his got his ring 15 years ago and he hasn't gotten, you know, uh, won a championship since, but he's been employed ever since never gone without being employed, you know? And, uh, and so there, there is a reward on the other end. It's just, it's just, you know, there's going to be a cutthroat business. Um, but it's also, um, a results business. And if you're not getting the results that they're expecting from you, then, you know, so be unfortunately, it. It's just, you got to get, you get, you get the X, but that's, that's what the money's for. Yeah. You paid well for that level of job insecurity. <laughs> um, just one last nuggets question and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, if someone hasn't seen an NBA game in a decade and asked me, who's this Nikola Jokic guy, you know, does he play like Jordan two-time MVP? Does he play like Kobe? I would probably say back, he plays like the 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 child of three parents uh moses malone magic johnson larry bird oh because he, he brings the ball up like magic passes like magic and bird can shoot outside like bird which magic couldn't do and like moses just an absolute bull in the paint and that's the best i can really do and has that sort of awkward brilliance of moses particularly late career moses and that's really the best i can do and i I really feel like he's the son of none and he'll be the father of none too like total sui generis as a player Do, do you agree with that and that was beautiful. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't put it together better. And the one thing I love about your uh, comparisons is that you didn't lean on just a European hook. You didn't just say he oh. likes a bonus or likes body or like, you know, you went on like three legit MVP superstar players, put them all together. And this is what you get. And I come away thinking, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah that's exactly it. Because the one thing about Jokic, too, that I love is that if you see, you know, after the Nuggets score, he sprints back on defense. He, he's not like some lumbering guy. He, he may look awkward or off balance when he's running, but he goes hard. Like mm-hmm. he exerts a lot of energy out there. Like he's not some sloth out there who's just like 
you know, um, you know, Frankenstein, you know, just lumbering all over the place. No, like he moves and like he finds every nook and cranny to get an advantage. And it's beautiful to see. And I love that comparison with all those three guys because he has a great court vision. I mean, he finds teammates before they even know they're open. Um, and then he is a brute. Like, you can't move him. And he that can last basket against L.A. Oh with about 50 seconds left where he literally made Dennis Schroeder and Davis, like, Indeed. flies yeah. on the windshield of a yeah. car. <laughs> like, get out of the way. I'm scoring, and we we send y'all home, okay? And that was that was that was it. And and, and he's, he's just he's a really intense competitor, like that. Uh, and I, I don't think people really appreciate that about him. It's like he was out there. I mean, it's hard to close a team out, but that second half, you're, you're in a you know down 15. That third quarter, he was like, you know what? We can beat these guys still. And I'm not. I'm gonna make sure we 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 let them know that y'all are done tonight. And he went out there in that third quarter and just destroyed them, just absolutely destroyed them. And the Lakers were able to make it a game. But then at the end, he's like, okay, enough for letting y'all, you know, mess around with my passes. I'm not – I'm going in here, lowering my head, and nobody's stopping me. And, mm. and that's what I, I love about him. And so I love that comparison because I can see all three of those players in his game. Um, because, again, if you watch Moses Malone play, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't something that you – necessarily could pattern yourself after there's never been another Moses never been anything close to him since um and but then the other guys like I mean he has he has great shooting he has great touch soft touch just like Bird had and his passing I mean no I love it it's perfect that's perfect I magic-esque I I mean yeah it's it's people are like oh stat pattern I'm like he's averaging basically 10 assists a game from the center position. Even Wilt, when he led the NBA in assists, basically on a dare just to show he could. And the yeah. only, he's the only other person to ever lead from the center position. He averaged 8.6 a year. Yeah. And it's not like he's getting assists because, Oh no, I'm being double or triple team. I got to get rid of the ball. Here you go. Or, you know what? Oh man, the shot clock's winding down. I don't have a shot. I want, uh, here you go. Can you bail me out? No, it's like, Okay, I got the ball. Who's cutting? Who's near the basket? All right, who's opening three-point line? And then, like, let me throw a no-look to you and then hit you wide open for three. Oh, you're cutting to the basket. Let me throw a lob to you for a dunk. Oh, you know what? I'm going to set the screen, kick it back to you so you can hit this three, make sure your, your defender can't get to you. You got all the space you need. Like, he's doing everything he can to make sure his teammates get off. And if and if nothing's there, they can communicate with their eyes and figure things out just on the, on the fly. So he's a great, he's great in, in, uh, improvisation. Like he does everything out there that you want um, a superstar player to do. And I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. I've, I've been a fan, like I said, I've been a fan since I spent that time with the Nuggets and really watched him up close and in practice and everything. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed that he's ascended to this height, but I always knew he'd be pretty good. Mm. M- Michael Lee, I love talking to you because you always show instead of tell. And you you always bring knowledge to the table that I didn't have before we spoke. So I, I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, just oh, right before time, you, man. yeah, I, I appreciate it, man, a lot. And and before <laughs> before we go, I'm about to do a little monologue about the legacy of Jim Brown. I just wanted to give you the chance. Uh, any thoughts that came to your head when you heard about his passing? Yeah, I, I was. It was sort of complicated, you know, because he's such a um, a flawed figure i mean he was a great man obviously um the greatest football player ever i mean i think that um most people may not recognize that but i, I think most people do i don't know younger people may not recognize it, but i think most people of a certain generation acknowledge that he was the best to ever play um but i also i'm disappointed by a lot of the decisions that he made um you know there's the domestic violence issues that i, I can't get past like i know some people do but i i just can't get past that but also towards the end of his life, um, when he was really trashing Colin Kaepernick's, you know, stance uh, for the American flag, um, you know, for the national anthem, you know, um, you know, I was really upset by his stance on that. It really disappointed me that he would, you know, be that critical of, of Colin. Um, then, of course, his support of Donald Trump, um, that disappointed me as well, considering what I thought he was. Um, and then I realized just going back in his past that he was always consistently who he was so yes. i just i just i just i just saw him in a different light that wasn't the truth 
And so when he passed, I think that my first reaction was, I can't believe he's dead because he seemed like one of those guys who was just going to live forever. Cause he just, even in his eighties, he looked like he was more fit than everybody else. And he could still get the ball and get you five yards if you needed it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but overall, um, he's just somebody who he, there's so many layers to him. Um, but I couldn't get past the negative ones. Amen. Michael Lee. Hey, how can people follow uh, your work and all the amazing journalism that you're doing these days? Well, obviously check me out at the Washington Post. Um, got some cool things I'm working on right now that I hope to drop in the next couple of weeks. And um, and yeah, you find me on Twitter at Mr. Michael Lee. All right. Well, we will keep everybody up to date on these pieces you've got dropping because they are always, always bangers. Thank you so much, <laughs> Michael Lee. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Ah, thank you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some words about one of the great flawed giants of the 20th century. Okay, look, the alert came across my phone from the New York Times, and frankly, it did hit me like a thunderbolt. Jim Brown died at 87. This is what the alert said. An acclaimed football player, actor, and civil rights activist, he was accused of domestic violence. That's how they summed up his life. And it was a lot to take in. I had spent four years writing a book about his life called Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, from which much of this article stems. As part of that project, I stayed at Brown's house in the West Hollywood Hills for a week, and despite his age and health, it was difficult to imagine him ever dying. The Times alert also showcased a fool's errand in its attempt to drill his life down to 20 words. Here he is being called a civil rights activist when he opposed much of the politics and many of the methods and tactics of the civil rights movement. He derided civil rights marches as parades in the 1950s, And then again in 2016, that was when he engaged in an ugly public feud with Representative John Lewis, who Brown condemned for questioning Trump's legitimacy. By that time, Brown supported Trump, a position that I argued made sense given his politics, which were both consistent and complicated. Brown supported Richard Nixon in 1968 and spoke at Huey Newton's funeral in 1989. This is complicated. What is not complicated is his treatment of women. But again, to break that down to only was accused of domestic violence, does both the history and the survivors an injustice. Brown's life calls for more than genuflection or dismissal. It demands study. Look, football is the closest thing we have in this country to a national religion, albeit a religion built on a foundation of crippled apostles and disposable martyrs. In this brutal church, Jim Brown was the closest thing to a warrior saint. Brown was both statistically and according to odd eyewitnesses, perhaps the greatest football player to ever take the field. At six foot two, six foot three, 230 pounds, running a sub four and a half second 40 yard dash, he was like a 21st century Terminator sent back in time to destroy 1950s and 60s linebackers. In the gospel of football, Defensive demons like Dick Butkus or Lawrence Taylor have carried some of that fearful mystique, transforming their opponents into quivering balls of gelatin. But on offense, the all-time great skill players have inspired adulation, but never physical fear. I mean, who's scared of Tom Brady or Jerry Rice? But on that side of the line of scrimmage, there is one true intimidator, and his name was Jim Brown. The statistics that define his time in football are still without equal. Brown played nine years and finished with eight rushing titles, a level of consistent greatness no one has come close to matching. He was the only player to average 100 yards rushing every game over an entire career, getting five yards with every carry. 
Then there was the most impressive number of all, zero. That was the number of games Brown missed over his nine years in the league. It would be an achievement for a place kicker, but it was especially remarkable given the ungodly workload Brown maintained and the constant punishment he took, touching the ball for roughly 60% of all of the Cleveland Browns' offensive plays. But Brown was also more than an athlete, even when he was an athlete. He was in many respects the first modern superstar, again as if arriving from the future. In an era before strong sports unions, he organized his locker room to stand up to management on issues great and small, never giving an inch and earning the derisive nickname from team executives, the locker room lawyer. 15 years before Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists for black athletes at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, Brown was the one who refused to be treated as a second-class citizen because of the color of his skin. In the time before Muhammad Ali shook up the world by joining the Nation of Islam and refusing to fight in the Vietnam War, it was Brown whom Ali turned to for advice and support. Jim Brown was the first player to use an agent. He was the first superstar to successfully demand that a coach be fired and that released teammates be immediately unreleased. He was the first athlete to ever willingly quit his sport in his prime because his quote-unquote manhood was more important to him than enduring the disrespect of management. He was the first black athlete to be bigger than the league itself. When players like LeBron James have leveraged their own stardom to assert their will on the direction of their teams and their leagues, it all traces back to Jim Brown. Now, if that's where Brown's story ended, it would fill volumes. But his football life was just the opening salvo in a much more sprawling epic. Brown parlayed his athletic fame into Hollywood stardom, where it was thought he could become the black John Wayne, in the words of Gloria Steinem, who was Brown's paramour, actually, at the time. When this path was stymied by the racialized rules of Hollywood, he became the first black actor to try to rewrite the script by launching his own mainstream big-time production company to, quote, make black films for a mass audience, along with his partner, the comedian Richard Pryor, before they had a falling out for the ages. He was an outspoken black power icon in the 1960s and spearheaded a network of black economic unions to build independent hamlets of financial strength in the black community. Brown has had his supporters and detractors, but the common thread that one hears from everyone who has had dealings with him, dealings good, bad, and ugly, is that Jim Brown is above all else, a man. This word man might as well have affixed itself like a birthmark to Brown when he arrived in the world on February 17, 1936. His nickname as a small child was Man, and the word manhood is the political current that pulses throughout his life. Kevin Blackstone wrote in the Washington Post in 2017 that Brown, maybe more so than any other black athlete in the past 50 years, came to be seen as a sort of emperor of black masculinity and of black power. Brown's assertion of his own unassailable masculinity conjures another legend who was a friend and contemporary, Malcolm X. In his eulogy for the icon of black empowerment, the actor Ossie Davis said, Malcolm was our manhood. Davis, in his stentorian voice, was arguing that Malcolm embodied black masculinity, valor, and heroism in a society dedicated to treating and labeling black men as boys. Brown quite self-consciously cut himself from that cloth. Brown asserted this fierce sense of manhood as a principle of emancipation. On the most hyper-masculine cultural canvases of the United States, NFL football, the black power movement, Hollywood's black exploitation era, the gang wars both inside and outside prison walls, Brown made his mark. In the most toxic expression of how our society defines what makes a man the assertion of domination over women, he has left a very different kind of legacy. The history of accusations of violence against women levied against him have scarred his legacy. When pressed about these incidents, Brown only said, there's been lies written about me, there's been some truth too. I'm no angel, but what I do, I tell the truth about. It was not merely that Brown did not take the accusations of violence against women seriously. No one in power really did. Art Modell, the former owner of the Cleveland Browns, said in one interview, Wise Guy Smile in Place, that Brown, quote, got in trouble because of, shall we say, a rough social encounter with a gal or two or three. 
The cases against Brown are extensive. He often said that he has never been convicted of violence against women, which is true. But almost all the cases tended to follow a script that was far too common at the time. Women, exclusively women of color, making heinous accusations against Brown, and then facing all sorts of harassment and disbelief and dropping the charges. Brown also shook his head when I asked him about this history, and he only said, violence against women, shit, as if he could not believe this still followed him so late in life. Yet the cases span the years from 1965 to 1999. It's a remarkable stretch that cannot be written off as just an endless series of law and order conspiracies, coincidences, or bad luck. If we're going to tell Brown's story, it is irresponsible to not say the names of Brenda Ayers, Ava Bonechin, Deborah Clark, and others. As the years passed, and at least a minority of people started taking these allegations seriously, they prevented him from achieving the kind of mainstream adulation bestowed upon contemporaries like Ali and Bill Russell. Barack Obama, who as president took a particular joy in interacting with black sports heroes of yesteryear, never invited Brown to the White House, which stung. Donald Trump, however, rolled out the red carpet. In December 2016, the president-elect sat down with Brown and former NFL player Ray Lewis. Brown left the meeting saying, I fell in love with Trump because he really talks about helping black people. If we understand Jim Brown's actual political beliefs over the last 50 years, and not the beliefs we projected onto him, his meeting with Trump should have surprised no one. His history shows that in addition to being a great football player, legendary tough guy, and anti-racist icon, Brown was always a mess of contradictions. He's the anti-racist who condemned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the civil rights movement as a waste of time. He's the NFL rebel who has long been at odds with the NFL Players Association. He was almost alone in fighting for the life of Crip gang founder, multiple-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and author Stan Tookie Williams until Tookie's last day on death row. He also stood with Donald Trump. Meeting Jim Brown in the flesh in 2014, even at his advanced age, almost answered the question for me as to how he could be widely revered despite his history in politics. He projected a sense of strength that made you want, even with all evidence to the contrary, to be lined up on his side. He walked with a cane as tall and thick as a baby oak. It was a chunk of wood designed to hold up a very specific body, a body that even with age and a pronounced limp was striking. He was built like a series of imperfect craggy cubes, no longer possessing the 47-inch chest and 32-inch waist that made him a Hollywood sex symbol, but still looking like he could move a mountain. Yes, he needed that cane to walk. He could not turn his neck. His hands could no longer grip objects with anything close to full strength. But he was still Jim Brown, sharp as a tack and made of stone. He said to me, I've always occupied a special position and being able to get certain opportunities because the system wanted to use my talents for economic gain. And as long as my talents were relevant, I was relevant. But the greatest desire in my soul was and is to represent myself as a man and carry myself as a man at all times. I wanted to help others and always credit those who helped me. I wasn't Jim Brown always. One time I was 8, 12, 18 years old. So you can't look at me or anybody as just one block because it doesn't all wrap up like a big box with candy and ribbons around it and shit. And it isn't all negative or positive. It just is what it is. Something documentarian Ken Burns said makes this understandable to me. He said, We always lament in the superficial media culture that there are no heroes. But that presupposes that a hero is perfect, and what the Greeks have told us for millennia is that a hero isn't perfect. It's just the negotiation between a person's strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes it's not a negotiation. It's a war. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Michael Lee for making the time. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Uh, my love for everybody out there uh, mourning the loss of Jim Brown and my love for everybody wrestling uh, with the person Jim Brown was and what it means for us today. The one thing I'll say, and I've said it again and again, is that we have to move beyond 
either condemnation or genuflection. It's not excusing people to try to explain and learn from their lives. For everybody out there listening, this is the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Please stay frosty. Peace.